check one two. All right, I'll I'll do the sound checks here. Uh, all right, uh, now you've heard the music from Inappropriate Earl from day one. Has been the song Tough, the band Tough, and the song Forever Yours, which was on uh, Dial MTV. I mean, Carson Daly was pumping it out back in the day. And my next guest, he's a repeat guest here. I don't have a lot of repeat guests on Inappropriate Earl, but. This guy is the singer of that song. You know him. You love him. Has the CEO of MetalSludge.tv, the torchbearer for 80s metal in 2016, the singer of the band Tough, which has had more lineup changes than Leonard Skinner. Put your hands together for the one, the only, one of the, the, uh, the original sponsor of Inappropriate Earl, Stevie Rochelle. Earl, that was an amazing intro. I was about to go to the store and get something to eat because I thought you were going to go on for another 15 minutes. But you deserve it, though. Hey, thank you very much. And out of the box, I see you are rocking the Stephen Piercy Mike Knuckles right in the studio. The second Dude. sponsor of Inappropriate Earl. By the way, September 30th at the Whiskey, if you're uh, out and about on the Strip, Stephen Piercy uh, will uh, be playing around 11 o'clock. I hope they have a better business plan than they did last time because I went up to the cashier. Right. And the guy looks at me and goes, do you have a ticket? I'm like, no, I want to buy one, you know. And I hand him $20. She's like, no, just go in. I'm like, no, but I I don't have a ticket. I want to make sure the bass player gets 20 bucks. Right. The great Matt Thorne from Mickey Matt, Rat. Matt Thor from Rough Cut and Jailhouse, but more importantly, Mickey Rat. And uh, they just let me in for free. So, you know, see these bands, some of these bands wonder why they, they don't make any money. Fun fact about Matt, Matt Thor actually engineered, and I will give him co-production quality uh, credit, Matt engineered and co-produced American Hairband by Tough. Which was, uh, tell the, uh, now I know you, you were on a while ago, uh, explain to my audience. It's about, what is it, a year and a half ago? Yeah, but yeah. my audience has short-term memory. Right, Okay. Uh, what was American Hairband? American Hairband was a track that I released in 2001. So that's 15 years ago. And it uh, fastly became a, I don't know, I guess you could say a little bit of a global hit, so to speak, in modern day terminology that it got played everywhere, was getting played on terrestrial radio, but it was also getting played on all the, the digital sharing outlets well at that point i don't know none of the streaming stuff existed but napster was coming into play and they were uh it's a lot of younger crowd going wow that song about tommy lee spinning his sticks is cool you know and we're saying shout shout at the devil again shout shout at the devil my friend shout shout never letting it end shout 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 well you're singing in key so hit, that automatically uh, disqualifies you from singing with motley crew <laughs> <laughs> I was at their last concert. Uh, it was weird when uh, Vince would put his microphone. I was in the front row. Uh, he'd put his microphone basically over my head for the crowd sing along, but yet you still heard his vocals. Yeah, they're probably running a fair amount of tracks and loops, but they're Motley Crue, and it is what it is. So, well, the amazing thing about that show was—Are you talking New Year's Eve? Uh, yeah. 
New Year's Eve or the night before New Year's Eve? Actually, I, I stand corrected. I was not at their last show. I was at the last show Alice Cooper opened up for Oh, them. okay. Because the great Nita Strauss right. on guitar right. for Alice uh, had invited me and my, at the time, lady friend right. uh, down. And, and like Molly Crew, Nikki Six had a cannon gun that shot fire. So as he's on the stage facing the crowd shooting this fire gun out over the audience's head, they're dropping confetti and at the same time. And I'm like, that, does anyone see a problem with this? Uh, with, with some girls in the front row with hair sprayed up hair. Like, there could have been, yeah, there could have been some singeing going on. So uh, I thought that was funny, but it's, you know, it's the eighties and they're, uh, you know, the Jew in me was like seeing Tommy Lee's, uh, roller coaster drum kit go over the crowd it's like how they get insurance for this right i'll give them this it was quite a spectacle i actually went on new year's eve at staples center at staples center i was at the pond right and how was it uh new year was you know i i hadn't seen motley crew probably since the 80s Uh, honestly i think the last time i saw them live was the dr feelgood tour and uh you know i saw the the previous tours, I saw Shout at the Devil, Theater of Pain, Girls, 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 and the Dr. Feelgood Tour, which, you know, even by that point, I was already in Los Angeles and Tough was together for, you know, a handful of years. I had kind of lost my fascination, infatuation, you know, just Motley Crue is God kind of thing, which I had when I was 18 and 19 and 20. But um, so, you know, and and when I found out that there were on, you know, tickets were like on the stub hub and stuff for like thirty one ninety nine uh, on new year's Eve. And the day before the day before people were like, Oh, I got my tickets for 35 bucks at like four that afternoon. I was like, if I can find a couple tickets for literally nothing, I'll go with my buddy. And, uh, I did bought tickets at like two or three o'clock. And, uh, I think it was like not even 80 bucks. It was like $75 for two tickets. They were in the nosebleeds, but I just wanted to go and check it out. I literally drove there. We went in, watched the show, looked at a bunch of crazy people, got done, uh, got in my car and drove home. And I thought, well, I want to get home before all the complete nut jobs are out drinking and driving and people are getting hit by cars. And so I was back home by one or one thirty and in bed. Well, speaking of uh, shows and the crowd and the maniacs, you last week on my birthday, September 17th, were at the Hair Nation Music festival, which might be, correct me if I'm wrong, the last metal concert at Irvine Meadows. I would say it's the last metal one because somebody said, is this the last concert? And I said, no, because I think this weekend is like garbage and... I think Gwen Stefani yeah, like, is you the know, last... Exactly. So it's, it's, it, there's a couple of other uh, concerts there, but they're the, yeah, it's the very end of the end. And that was the last uh, Hair Nation hair kind of show. Wow. Nice. Um so uh, it was a good time, you know, a lot of bands, a lot of people, uh, you know, all different people up and down the totem pole and the ladder of success from the smaller bands to the mid-level and, you know, a couple of uh, A-list singers out there with their product, meaning Vince Neil and Brett Michaels, you know, and um, everybody got along, everybody had a good time. Now, why wouldn't, uh, does Brett Michaels, because you know the business end uh, of, of music better than most because you've been doing it. 30 years. It, it, does Brett Michaels just make more money basically playing Poison songs I, I, with his solo band than playing with Poison? I, I would guess because he's the sole guy, he he's definitely 
probably making more than if it was playing with poison and it was being split four ways, you know? Um, like, do you think his thinking is, well, why pay with poison and, and split everything 25% or whatever their breakout is? I'll just play with these four dudes and make 80%. You know, here, here I recently talked to somebody about this and it's like, they were asking me about my thoughts on, you know, Axel getting back with Slash and Duff and why isn't Izzy involved and... Izzy tweeted something like they didn't want to split the dough equally. So see you later, you know? Um, and then people talked about Brett and poison and blotter and rat and all these different kind of, you know, configurations of products where one guy's out doing it. And, you know, as far as the Brett thing's concerned, here's what I think. Um, poison was a band from the get go and there was four guys and I, and I pretty, pretty sure it was a four way split for the first 20 25 years. However, when, when a lot of this stuff, meaning the hair band industry, the bands, the music, the MTVs, the radio play, the record sales all went away. There's a lot of guys and some who had a lot of money socked away, kind of stepped to the side and just went on living life. At some point, I remember, uh, we all remember that in probably even the late nineties, Brett Michaels started doing solo shows. Brett Michaels of Poison, and he was playing D-list markets. He was playing, you know, Escanaba, Michigan, on a Wednesday night in a in a club that holds 350 people on a on a stage that's you know smaller than Paladino's, and he was doing those shows. And I I know this because I know some of the guys that played in cover bands that opened up for him, and I remember us reporting on stuff as well on Metal Sludge where Brett would be like sitting outside a bus or an RV or a van in the cold, in the rain and signing autographs for, for, you know, whatever 60, 80, hundred fans were there at one in the morning. And so he did that for years. And, and, and I don't think he was getting 30 or 50 grand at those shows. I'm thinking he's probably getting three, 3,500 or something, you know? And so Brett continued to do that. And then when somebody offered him this, you know, and I say this because that's what everybody called it. This goofy idea like, hey, we're going to do Flavor of Love, only we're going to do it with a rocker guy. And we're going to put you on a TV show with a bunch of girls. They're all going to vie for your love. And they're going to, you know, you're going to pick one. It's going to be your girlfriend. Like, and how quirky was that in the beginning? But that show, you know, was was another step of reality TV that kind of started to launch him up the, the, the uh, you know, it did help him. The, 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 the status. And it did bar. help Poison, I guess. Absolutely. And so there was some Poison tours along the way, but Brett continued to promote himself. He didn't call it Poison, even though he was playing Poison songs. I know that he was doing, you know, the, the Kiss cover and the Leonard Skinner cover. Which and, Kiss cover? I don't Rock know, like All Rock Night. All Night or something. Which Poison had covered, but he continued to put himself out there. And even in quote unquote, low rent situations, you know, he probably didn't have to go play Escanaba, Michigan on a Wednesday for three or four grand, but he did, you know, in front of a few hundred people and, and, and probably jammed with the local guitarist guy that got up there and, you know, played a kiss riff with him. So the fact that Brett did that and then threw himself in that cable TV show, uh, and then, you know, started endorsing everything from dog collars to whatever. He continued to keep himself out there. And at one point, his brand was valuable enough that 
they even put him on The Apprentice, which was a pretty, you know, pretty next level major network show, obviously featuring, you know, a major presidential candidate right now. And then obviously he even won it, you know, so Brett positioned himself and continue to fly that flag and get out there with that headband on and his cowboy hat and sing those songs. And so if at this point there is a value for poison, I think he's in the driver's seat. He's worth more than a quarter, just like Axel with guns and roses. You know, he went out and did Chinese democracy, did multiple tours that were like partially filled arenas and had various guitarists from, Bigfoot to Bumblefoot to Chickenhead and Buckethead and Bigfoot. You know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, he had a whole list of guys that came in and out of the group, and he continued to fly the flag of Guns and Roses and took the beating of why is he doing this? It's not the same. Well, now that they've all come full circle, or at least the three, the big three have with Slash and Duff, um, and someone like Izzy says, "Hey, they didn't want to split equally." I personally don't think that Iz- Izzy deserves an equal cut. You know, Axel's been throwing himself on the flames for the last 20 years nonstop, you know, and taking heat for everything, whether it was about whether he had braids in his hair or did he get Botox or who's who's his guitarist, you know, and, and, and Izzy's been kind of laying low and I'm sure he's played his guitar and made some records, but you know, Axel's continued to make that brand, you know, what it is. And, And he's become that modern day Elvis Michael Jackson for not just rock, but for, for music in general, he's, he's a pretty, uh, pretty legit iconic figure. So if, if Guns N' Roses is going to reap the rewards of a, a couple of years worth of shows in stadiums and make a few hundred million dollars, I don't think the pie should be split equally with, with guys like Izzy Stradlin. That's my thought. Well, that was like the same thing with the Gene and Paul and Kiss when Ace and Peter came back, they wanted like, Hey, not 50 50 but 25 25 25 25 and gene and paul from what i understand we're like hey well we're doing crazy nights and you know hot and lick it up and yeah exactly with with Kulik or mark st john or you know vinnie vincent or any of those other guys yeah or jean beauvoir on bass in those mid 80s albums right so Originally from the Plasmatics? Yes. I mean, Kiss had more ghost musicians in the 80s than the Haunted House. I mean, they really, you know, you can't fool me, Gene. Booberry on bass. I loved uh, Kevin Valentine's drumming on Psycho Circus. Thank you very much. Well, you're a Kiss guy and you know your history, so. Well, it's just Your kind of- history. I wouldn't know all that because I'm not a, I'm not the, the most diehard of Kiss fans, so. Well, see, I like Kiss more in the 80s, which is sacrilege to say to a classic Kiss fan. Yeah, I, my favorite Kiss song is Lick It Up, which people usually get, you know, I'm not, you know, voting for Black Diamond or King of the Nighttime World or Strutter or something like that, you know, so. I'm a huge Vinnie Vincent fan, as you know. Just, Vinnie, where are you? Just unmask yourself. And Somewhere come in out. Nashville. Well, I want to do a documentary on him, and I, you know, it'd be perfect for Netflix if if Anvil can get made. I think the the documentary and Quiet Riot, if if they got a documentary on Netflix and nothing, I, I love Frankie Benali, but like, I think, and I'm I, this is dangerous to do this live. You throw out a documentary called Finding Vinny, right? And basically. It starts out with me sitting right where you are with my empty box set that he shipped me. 
no product. And then I'm on a plane to Nashville to go, where are my cassettes? And sidebar, I had breakfast with Frankie Benali yesterday. And I'm a, let me tell you, like, I admire what he's done. Get You know, I don't think people realize how hard it is to get stuff on the air, whether it's Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. Right. It, and, and via Kickstarter, too. You know, mm -hmm. I see most Kickstarter projects. I'm like, you're crazy. But I actually, I don't know if you know this about me, Stevie, but I got um, motivation. You know, you know how Kickstarter works, right? If you donate a certain amount you get a prize right like in the quiet riot case it was uh i think a hundred dollars got you signed drumstick or a drum head or a right. signed dvd or 500 bucks gets you uh you know name like, in the uh, credits or an album or something right. but for ten thousand dollars you got to be in the documentary right so i started the next day a kickstarter uh, to do a documentary on the guy who donated ten thousand dollars to be in the quiet riot <laughs> you did absolutely and right. i got funding but there's that you know and I, that was the first reason i wanted to watch that documentary i'm a huge quiet riot guy right from their days at the starwood thank you eddie nash but i'm like i gotta see what 10 grand gets you like right. and about 40 minutes in there's this clip that really had nothing to do with anything and they're just interviewing this lawyer who's like their number one fan i'm like right. that's the guy so 10 grand you know i never I, I I didn't really like Kickstarter or the GoFundMes. Um, and I guess for a few reasons, like, you know, for certain younger bands, certain bands, certain situations, like there was a band from Sweden called Crash Diet, which was on the road. And their manager, uh, Michael, who was a really nice guy, he actually died at one of their shows in England. He literally, from what I know, and I know this to be pretty in the ballpark. He was at their show while they were on stage and he was going down into the dressing room and he fell down the stairs in this old, old club. And I played this club before. So it's like this deep, dark, long staircase that looks like it's going into a, you know, essentially like a bomb shelter under the building. He fell down those stairs and he hit his head and ended up becoming seriously hurt. And then they found him and he had to go to the hospital. They took him to the hospital. And, and a couple of days later, like he died. So they started a, a Kickstarter to help them out to go on with the tour and continue to go forward. And they were trying to raise like 10 grand and all their fans collectively, I think gave them like 40 grand. It was crazy, you know? And so in that kind of a situation, like I was like, Hey, I get it. Like they wanted to go forward and uh, all their monies were tied up through their management company and through his bank. And he was married and had kids. And so I, I backed it. But when guys go online and go, Hey, so, uh, we're, uh, we're thinking about making a record and we're thinking about making merchandise and we're thinking about, we do this and we'll do that. If everybody gives us 10 grand, then we'll make it and sell it to you. You know, it's like, so my, my processing was always like everything we've done, I've done tough RLS records, you know, even the, the side things, the cheese heads, the wild side and nitro and, and my buddy and shameless, like we've funded our projects, put it out there and, and put our, put our money where our mouth is, you know? Um, and I get, I know I get that it's getting harder, but I did have an idea that I wanted to do. And this ties into something that happened recently. I was like, you know what? All these fuckers are asking for money. I'm going to do a hair starter. I want money for another hair transplant. 
For you. I, for me. I want another $20,000 to put more hair on my head. And and so I had this whole idea. I was going to do this like two or three years ago. I, I was going to do a, a Kickstarter, but it was going to be called Hair Starter. And I wanted people to donate $20,000 so I could get more hair transplants. And, um, and then I thought of how I was going to, you know, c- contribute and sell things. And then I was going to sell advertisement. Um, and this is a serious thing. I shared this with some people, but I never really went public with it. I was like, I want to share advertisement as well. So I was, I was looking for advertisers who was going to pay. Like I probably could have come to, to, uh, you know, inappropriate early and said, listen, if you want to, if you want to throw up you know, seven fifty or a thousand, we can go to uh, a, a good artist and they can draw the inappropriate Earl logo across my forehead, and I'll take the fo- the headband off and we'll do a photo shoot pre transplant, <laughs> and 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 then I was going to sell another spot on the top of my head, which was you know thinning very badly, which as you can, now you can feel, I got a little stubble coming in there. Feel that Earl? It's a little. So yes, I was going to go and sell, as you called me on the way here, a bald motherfucker, I think you called me. This is, uh, no, I did not call you that. You called me a bald son of a bitch. Okay, that's different. Hold on, sit down so I can get a nice picture of this. Are you going to, I don't know if I want to have a, you know, do we need all those? I mean, I've already been on Instagram, I've already been on Facebook, I've already tweeted out like videos of me getting it shaved. Yeah, I've just taken one picture of you like bald. Yeah, okay. Well, have a seat, dude. You got to stop moving. I mean, I'm trying to... Work the yeah, mic. The sides are coming in, and it's just a little, uh, you know. One, two, three. Perfect. And for the record, not that everybody gets to see this, but as you can see in the back, the transplants that took place, there's already some damage, some scars. Can you see that? Yeah, I thought it was the uh, Nitro logo. <laughs> But uh, it's funny because, you know, my buddy had hair transplants at one point as well. And he um, he takes like MMA and like jujitsu and stuff. I'm not and making of, fun of him. Of course, he goes there and people are like, dude, what happened to your head? And he always tells them some kind of crazy story like, well, these three guys came at me with a motorcycle chain one night. But, you know, I'm still here, you know, or I got hit with a hatchet one night and I jumped in an alley. What are you on Instagram? At Stevie Tough. Okay. Keep going. By the way, I saw... Uh, is it a horrible photo of me? It's great. Dude, come on, man. It's, I, no, it's no worse than your fucking beach towel photo from back <laughs> in the day. I mean, let me tell you something right now. The ending of Philadelphia is less gay than that pick. <laughs> yeah, that is a pretty brutal pick. But mad love for the amount of women you've scored in your life. Uh, just that's... Yeah, there's there's been some... There's been some hit and miss and some good, uh, some good times. So either way, I was going to do a hair starter, but then at one point, you know, it came to a, a head, no pun intended, where I was like, you know, what, I'm just going to shave my head. And so I, you know, I was at one point, I was like, you know what, I'm going to film it. Everybody's used to seeing me in a baseball hat or even more directly a monster energy drink hat, one of my bestest sponsors forever. And when I say that, I mean, I've been involved with Monster Energy for God, probably almost the length of the history of the the brand, meaning Monster, more than 10 years, easily. Full disclosure, I'm a rock star guy. Whoa, whoa, now we're having a problem. No, I, you but, know, uh, Monster to me tastes a little too medicine-y. Right. 
But uh, you know, rock star, I do the diet yellow. Yep, you're you're rock star. That's all good. But you know, Stevie Tough, Metal Sludge, we're Monster Energy. So I always would be seen in the Monster Energy drink hat, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna put that on, and we're gonna take it off, and we're just gonna start shaving. And then we put it on Instagram with the with the half shaved look, and I look like Gallagher, and people were like dude, what the fuck? Is that real? Like people are texting me and they're blowing up my phone and they thought it was like, like a Halloween, like rubber bald head on there or something. And I was like, but I was like, no, I shaved my head and, uh, I've actually shaved it in the tub a couple times, you know, like self shaved it, which is kind of a trip. Cause I had never put a razor across my fucking skull, you know? Well, I mean, it looks like you did it with a Floby. You know, and now the, the sides are kind of like starting to get a little spiky and like, you know, the transplants that I had done back in, in the nineties are kind of like spiking up in front and, you know, but Hey, is it tough for an eighties, uh, musician, rock, singer, rocker, whatever, uh, what do you prefer to be known as eighties singer, eighties you know, whatever. I mean, I, you know, when people say hair band, it's like, that's a category of sorts, which I'm not ashamed of, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a rock singer. You know, like when I first started listening to music that I really got into as much as I liked Motley Crue, I also liked Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. And I mean, I couldn't sing as good as Bruce Dickinson, you know, not many people can, but I was a fan of, you know, of rock music, heavy metal. I mean, it was, I think it was heavy metal before it was glam rock or hair bands. It was like, you know, just he heavy metal was the first word that I came to like Helix and Black and Blue and Wasp. And th those bands were a little bit more edgy, you know, and it wasn't until probably Theater of Pain when Motley Crue started coming out with the pink tights and just a little bit more glammy, which I think they kind of had adopted from what the local scene was turning into at that point, which was the faster pussycats and the poisons and stuff. In rat. Like 85. Thank you very much. Well, rat fashion rock as Steven would call it. And now we've got three rats touring. We'll get it. But is it tough to, uh, you know, the image of all you guys was, right. was so much was the fucking hair. Right. And now you're bald. Uh, and I'm not giving you shit. I'm just right. saying, it, I mean, is it, uh, you know, I imagine it's like a fastball pitcher who can't throw a fastball anymore. Well, you got to look at it this way as well. I look better than Steve Riley. So, well, I mean, and I, listen, uh, you know, Prince, people do. <laughs> Prince looks better than Steve Riley now. So, and that's not a diss to Steve. You know, I'm just being sludgy, but you know, I, I, I was, you know, for whatever it's worth, I was, a, I guess a fairly cute kid at the donut shop, you know, when I was 16 and I didn't have long hair then, you know, I was just a kid with a skateboard. But so the fact that I don't have great hair, that's not, that's not the biggest concern because I have other assets, you know, and oh, I bet. what, what do you want to delve into that? No, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, I, I'm, I'm not obese, you know, I'm not a dwarf, you know, I'm a full six foot tall grown man. And, you know, I mean, there's guys out there that, you know, Sully from Godsmack's got a good head of hair, but the guy's like five, three and, you know, weighs 110 pounds. So, you know, that's not always the best thing. I guess when you look at the rest of the world, females, the female population, and you think, well, I, pretty much can't date like 98% of all women because they're all taller than me, you know? Um, so, you know, there's, you gotta, you gotta take what you get, 
you, know? you did it this way. You just said, F it. I'm going to shave it versus uh, what do you think is better? And I'm not asking you to throw, as they say on RuPaul's Drag Race, right. shade at. But you take a guy like... Um, Michael Kelly Smith of Britney. Well, I guess he's not in Britney Fox right. anymore. But like he, even back in the day, he had uh, some would argue a wig uh, on that you know, and not know. the best looking hair set up altogether. It didn't look that realistic or right. Or let's uh, someone who's a little more known, uh, Gene Simmons. I right. Mean, uh, like in, in the uh, Lick It Up era, he, I think he still might have had his own hair. But then uh, on that uh, animalized home video, it looked like he had a raccoon on his head. Right. Right. And then previous to like Asylum, it got a little wonkier. And then yeah, there was crazy. a mushroom or a George Washington at one point. Or that was the Asylum <laughs> tour. Crazy Nights. He kind of went with almost a uh, like a Jennifer Aniston Bob. <laughs> And, and then uh, hot in the shade, he kind of was letting it grow out. And revenge was, you know, looked like his own hair. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Piercy still has his own hair, which I think is great. I guess the Piercy's best rocking. The best example of someone who probably should have done what you did. Uh, and this is no disrespect because I'm a huge fan of Quiet Riot. I love Frankie Benali, but um, you know. When uh, Metal Health came out in 83, you know, Ke you could tell Kevin Dubrow was... Was thinning. Uh, yeah, which is no big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but then by the time I think the Wild and the Young video came out, right. he had like this poodle hair. Like, right. So you do you... That was an option for you to do something like that, but you just thought... Never wanted to do that. I mean, I had some extensions in the heyday like we all did, but it's funny even like somebody said about like, somebody made a comment on my Facebook about, well, now you don't have to bleach your hair anymore. And I said, bleach my hair? The last time I bleached my hair was like probably in 1990, you know, which is 26 years ago. So it's not like, I mean, I'm a natural blonde and... Uh, and people also said this. They said, wow, when you took your hat off and you started having your head shaved, like you had way more hair up there than I thought. And I was like, what did you think? I was a fucking cue ball with fringe on the side. Like, of course I had hair, but I didn't have great hair, you know. And, you know, if I had Zach Wilde's hair or Sebastian Bach's hair, I would, I'd probably still have it. But now, did it, you bleach it? Because, uh, you know, uh, 91, uh, you know, Nirvana came out and Kurt Cobain was, uh, you know, identified almost as much for his. His hair. I mean, no, my, my hair was always blonde as a kid. And when I saw v Vince Neil on the Shout at the Devil tour and the videos and the photos that went with it, I came home and I said, Mom, I want my hair like this, blonde. She says, you are blonde. I said, no, I want it like this. And I showed her a picture of Vince Neil and she said, that's not blonde, that's burned. And I said, I want my hair burned. How can I make it burned? And she says, well, you have to put bleach on it. And I was like going to the basement to go to the laundry area to grab a bucket of bleach. And I was going to like pour it over my head. And she explained to me that I can't do that. I'm going to burn my scalp. And she's like, you need to go to like a beautician and have her put, you know, highlights or whatever it was called. You know, this is like 84, you know, so I'm like, whatever his hair has, that's what I want. So I like started, you know, it wasn't just about being blonde. I wanted it fucking white. I wanted it bleached platinum white, which of course doing that for five, six, seven years was like probably not the best for my hair. And well, unless you wanted to be in King Cobra. Well, yeah. And then, and then of course, and then in Los Angeles, it's like there was places doing hair extensions and 
you know, the Johnny Rod who had like hair like CeCe's. He had really bleached hair, but it was kind of short and spiky. Then he, you know, add a foot of extensions on the side. So I was like, oh, I'll just get some of them, you know, which it's, it's corny looking back, but a lot of guys did it. You know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys didn't have to do it because they had naturally really good hair. But so at one point, yeah, I just, I shaved my head and people are like, are you going to let it grow back? And I'm like, well, if I let it grow back, it's going to be, you know, probably military length or UFC fighter length. And I, I, I don't look to have long hair again. I don't look to have a ponytail again. You know, uh, it's just, it's now behind me. So. Right, I can changed. still rock. I don't need to have a pony. I don't have to have a greasy little stringy ponytail in the back to rock. I mean, uh, I don't think anyone looks at Rob Halford and goes, he'd be better with a full head of hair. Right, exactly. Um, by the way, I was watching the King Cobra video uh, for their song, Never Say Die. Right. And Louis Gossett Jr. was in it. And I would have loved to have been his agent when he got pitched. Hey, you got to do the video for the movies, man, King Cobra. You got to act like that. It was kind of a parody of him and officer and a gentleman where he's making King Cobra exercise. And like, I never saw that video. I'll have to look that up. I'm telling you, it's the fucking funniest thing you've ever cut. You got it's Carmen. so horrible. It's amazing. Well, you, here's a, an Academy award winning actor. Right. And he's being forced to, act with johnny rod and mark free uh, excuse me marcy free right the og caitlin jenner right i mean he went all in and david michael phillips and mick Sweeto. yes of uh, bullet boys fame i think uh, right and well and am i correct in mick Sweeta? yeah mick Sweeta became a bullet boy and uh the other guy that i just said his name and i just johnny rod it. no johnny rod mick Sweeta. Mike, it's is it Michael J. Phillips? I'm I'm mixing his name. He's got like three first names. Wasn't Michael J. Phillips and Giafria, or am I? Uh, he also was like in Keel, and he has there. There's a lot of those guys that kind of were somehow intertwined. And Lonnie Vincent was actually in King Cobra at one point when Johnny Rod had left and then went to Wasp. Okay. And Lonnie Vincent was the bassist in King Cobra for a short time, and after Mark Free had left. Then Mark Tureen was actually in King Cobra for a very short time. And that's when Mark Tureen, Lonnie Vincent, and McSweeta then decided to call and form their own project, which, which was the Bullet Boys. And then they got a new a drummer, which wasn't Carmine, obviously. It was Jimmy DeAnda. And then they got their deal on Warner Brothers, and Ted Templeman got involved and produced them, and they put out a couple of great records. Now, we're in 2016. Can you... Get a detailed breakdown of Mark Turin's shenanigans in the eighties, right here, an appropriate Earl. Can I? Can I what? Well, but I, I was saying, where oh, else? Where can, you, yeah. can you, you know, find this breakdown? Exactly, and Mark's still out there. You know, he's flying the Bullet Boys flag, and he still, you know, can sing his ass off. And I think and play his ass off. Was uh, auditioned for Rat at some point. Early, uh, like I'm right. talking Mickey I, Rat. Yeah, I think he was, but he wasn't a singer. He was a guitarist, right? So for a he, short time, and and I, I believe he talked about being in a in a situation where he auditioned for Ozzy as well. I mean, he had to have had the chops. Yeah, to, uh, does. I mean, you know, Rat gets made fun of a lot, uh, not by me because they're mm -hmm. they're my favorite. You're band, a huge Rat fan, even though uh, Blotzer and I uh, seem to have uh, not really, uh, you know, jived. Right. You know, he basically told me to F off on uh, email when I'd asked him to come on the podcast. 
Yeah, yeah he's not a fan of mine either, but that's okay. Well, let's talk about him then. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, here's the thing. There's three rats touring. Uh, I, I've had Stephen Piercy on here. He was amazing. Couldn't have been any nicer. And, you know, some people that said, Earl, you know, just, you know, if you catch him on the wrong day, you know, he's uh, can't be difficult. I've found every interaction with Stephen Piercy to be amazing. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, right now there's a little controversy in the rat world. There's essentially three rats touring because they can't get along. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll ask Blotzer to come on. And he's like, no, you had Stephen on and you made fun of me on the podcast. And I think I jokingly said to Stephen, well, why don't you guys just tour without Bobby? I mean, how important is the drummer, really? Right. I, I mean, I get that he wouldn't be a fan of that line, but, you know, it's like, Jesus, get over it. You should be happy someone... I mean, I realize I'm not Eddie Trunk, like, in terms of the numbers, but you should be happy anyone wants to interview you. Right. I mean, you know, so, I mean, that's the crazy thing to me. Like, Piercy's at the Whiskey next Friday. We talked about Brett Michaels just basically playing poison with four dudes. Piercy's playing basically rat. Mm -hmm. uh, plus his solo stuff, which I like. I mean, I never really got into the industrial, you know, like the vertex right. stuff. But, you know, I like that Desmond Child cheese. Right. So, like, I mean, what is it? Like, it's just a fan. I, I say to myself, can't these guys just fucking get along? Is it that hard? I mean, I understand for 30 years you're not going to, like... You know, like you see riffs with Gene and Paul where you could tell they're not necessarily besties anymore. Right. It, is it... What do you think it is with Rat? Why they just... Seems to be almost a hatred. You know, I I don't know the, you know, the complete inner workings of, of what that band was or is or how it all came to be. I mean, I've heard things from friends and people very close and related to the situation. But... You know, I, I think it's, there's, you know, more than three sides to the story. You know, like somebody says, there's, you know, his side, her side, and then the truth or, you know. Um, but clearly the way that Bob went about uh, kind of hijacking the, the band, the brand, the name, and that's what some people have, have said he had essentially done. That's that's what's not sitting well with people, you know, and a lot of people have said, well, what about Frankie Benali or what about Warren or but, you know, here's the thing. For starters, Warren can't have Janie sing because Janie's no longer here. Right. And um, that I understand. Yeah. And um, Kevin as well. Well, and here's the thing. And, and, and Warren brought in Robert Mason, who is in his own right, has some credentials. He's got a resume and he was on. I believe the second lynch mob record. And he had, he had cut his teeth on some pretty reputable situations. Uh, audition for rat along with you. Not only did he audition, but he was actually the guy they picked. He was the original guy they picked. But from what I heard, they showcased, I believe at the Viper room for John Claudner and portrait records in the label and the label and, and or Claudner from what I heard, didn't like, or didn't want Robert. That's crazy. To me. And and so then at one point the band went to Jizzy. And, and this is this is what I'd heard over the years. And I think if you Googled this, you'd find it out. But Robert has, without a doubt, a, a respectable resume and background and relationship to a lot of bands over 25 years or more, 30 years. So the fact that Warren brought him in, it 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 works 
Obviously, they don't have an option to go back to Janie. As far as Frankie's concerned, and I'm comparing these because people have compared the rat thing to Warrant or to Quiet Riot or to Whitesnake or something. As far as the Quiet Riot thing's concerned, Frankie um, also doesn't have an option to keep Kevin involved because Kevin's no, no longer here. And when Kevin did die, Frankie went into mourning for like three years, you know, he, it, it just stopped quiet rides ceased to exist for one, two going into three, whatever years he didn't do anything. And at one point, and this is, uh, from, from Frankie's, you know, from Frankie, he told me, and I think he's talked about this in the press that when he decided he wanted to do it again, he went to Kevin's mom and he, asked for her blessing and basically said that he wanted to possibly go out and play and what were her thoughts. And at one point, Kevin's mother said, Frankie had the shoe been on the other foot and you had died. Kevin would be out right now playing those songs for people. So I totally want you to do this. Do it for Kevin. Do it for the band. Do it for the history of the band and everything that's related. Go out and play Kevin's songs. And so that was a big thing for Frankie. He got Kevin's mom's you know, blessing and best wishes to say, go do this. And, and so, uh, you know, and then in relation to it, you know, Frankie's band, uh, Alex Grossi has been in the band for, I believe it's more than a decade now, like 12 years. He was also on board with Kevin for, and Frankie for many years. And Chuck Wright, who plays bass for all those that don't know, he wasn't in the classic lineup per se in the videos and the tours, but like Chuck was the guy that actually played on the first record. Yeah, in the videos. You know. Which yeah. was a great scene in the documentary when the kid says, uh, you know, they're in an autograph line and uh, I think the kid had a copy of Metal Health and he's giving it to all, he gave it to Frankie and then mm -hmm. Chuck kind of reaches out and the guy's like, I'll, I'll have you sign something else. And Chuck's like, no, I played on this. And this is, it's awkward, but right. Chuck's like not begging, but he's like, no dude, I really, and he takes out right. the liner notes. And so, and you know, Chuck had, Chuck as well had been involved and was related to that project, you know, before, during, and after those, those glory years as well. So, and, and he's in the band now. And, and then what's, what's crazy too, which I believe it's in that documentary and it's been talked about is that, when it came time that they ended up with these couple singers and things went back and forth and they ended up with Jizzy Pearl, that situation, for those who don't know, back in the day, Metal Sludge had interviewed every rock star, you know, 500 rock stars. And over the years, we interviewed Kevin DeBrow more than a few times. And we used to do a thing called Rate a Singer, where we would ask one singer about other singers. And Kevin DeBrow's Rate a Singer, the guy that he talked the most highly about and he gave a really good rating and said really good things about was jizzy pearl so how funny is it all these years later and frankie at one point had come to see that that he read an old interview of kevin's where kevin talked about jizzy pearl and and it was on metal sludge and so then when jizzy came into 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 sight as possibly being the next singer in quiet riot it was almost kind of like a weird twist of like, wow. And, and Kevin of all the, the singers he talked about, like Jizzy was the one guy that he really praised. And now, you know, a decade or 12 years later, Jizzy's now going to sing in the band in place of Kevin. So, and another thing is at the end of the day, Kevin and 
Frankie were very good friends. They were fricking frack. They were, you know, they went through a lot together over, I guess, what, 30 some years or whatever. And they were still partners. They were buddies. They, they did this together for many years. They went through to the highest, the highs, the lowest of lows. And going back to what Bobby's done with rat in relationship to the other guys, including Steven, who a lot of people, you know, Steven is, he's rat to a lot of people as is Warren and the others. But Steven is the guy, you know, when he's the rat, he's the rat guy, he's the focal point, he's the voice. And Steven and Bobby never had, from what I know, a good relationship. It was always on the rocks and it was very, very rocky between them. So Frankie doing uh, his thing, he still had a relationship with Kevin that was good till the end. And Bobby never had that with Steven. And Bobby, from what some people have said, has kind of hijacked the band. So, and it's legal. And at one point, I think like Great White or Queensryche, it's going to have to go through this, the, the, the various legal loops uh, and mediation and lawyers and judges. And at one point, somebody's going to have to buy somebody else out, which is kind of what I think happened between the Great Whites, the Great Mike members and the Queensryche members. And I think that's what's going to happen with Rat at one point, but we're not there yet. Well, I mean, I think the thing a lot of people struggle with with rat myself included is that and steven couldn't get into this on the podcast for you know legal uh, correct ramifications and i respected that uh but i guess you and i don't have to uh you know uh, we can get into it a little bit i guess as this was steven's band he founded it like so i think people are like wait a minute how does bobby have control oh i mean steven bought brought bobby into the band correct uh, and I know there was that thing, I think, around, uh, you know, at various points where uh, Bobby accused Stephen of uh, quitting the band in the middle of a tour right. or at, uh, right uh, before a tour started and it cost the band money and, and he lost in court. Uh, so I'm assuming the bad blood between them still stems from that. But uh, to me, the catch 22 is Blotzer's got to know that. He's going to make more money with Steven and nothing against the guys in his band. Now the Bobby Blotzer rat experience, I'll give him a plug. Uh, but it's like, I, I'm not trying to be a dick, but no one wants to see that. Do they? Am I wrong? Well, there is some people that will say it's good and, and give it a shout out. And he, here's my thoughts on that. You know, respect to the guys that are involved or doing it, but you know, it's been, you know, less than a year and there's been four bassists, five, six guitarists. I mean, like, even you know, Robbie Crane quit. Who's yeah. like, lo uh, to me, seems like incredibly loyal to Blotzer. Well, and, and Rob Robbie kind of did it for the summer because he was kind of on hiatus from Black Star Riders and he was in between projects and they now started making a new record. And I think he was always committed to that and was basically free this summer to, you know, do some shows and go make some money, you know? Um, but, um, as far as the guys that Bobby, Bobby brought in, um, you know, out of the, out of the box, it was, you know, it was essentially, you know, a tribute cover band from Vegas with some guys that had not the, the biggest of resumes or the biggest of names. And, you know, uh, it, and, and it, here's the thing when he first did Bobby Blotzer's 
rat experience. I saw the videos and a lot of other people did too. And, and everybody said the same thing, like, wow, they sound great. And that Josh kid can sing those songs. Amazing. But you know what? There's some drummers out there that play the drums better than, than Lars Ulrich. There's Metallica tributes with amazing drummers. There's Kiss tributes with guys that are playing, quote unquote, the Paul and can sing Paul's parts from 1977 and 79 and and do them great. But at the end of the day, does anybody want to see a guy from a tribute band singing, singing the Kiss songs? No, we want to see Paul Stanley. You know, and we don't want to go see Metallica and go, well, this guy's a better drummer, but you know, it's not Lars. It's some, it's some guy from Austin, Texas, or, you know, and, and so as good as Josh can sing people, you know, yeah, great, great, great for the Bobby Blotzer's rat experience or a rat tribute, but it's not rat. Stephen Piercy is rat. Warren Martini is rat. Juan Crocier is rat. And even Bobby Blotzer is to an extent a part of rat, but not by himself with whoever he decides to bring out that weekend. That's not rat. Yeah. I mean, cause uh, you know, uh, like I love Piercy's solo band because you, you do have the bass player from Mickey rats. So he does know the songs as good as you and can. And Chris Hagar on guitar as well, who was also a part of Mickey rat. Yeah. I love Chris. I mean, so you've kind of got like the earliest version of rat, at least three of the five guys. And you know, the guitarist, Eric Fiorentino, is that, uh, the, the lead guitar, the guy who does Warren's part. I don't know who that guy is, but I, he's I, been with Steven forever. Like I think 10 right. years, Eric, it's either fear Bald head. Bald hair with right. a little mohawk. Fiorentino. Right, I'm sorry. Right. I really apologize to him that I'm not getting his name down. Uh, but he doesn't. Fabio. <laughs> he doesn't exactly sound like Warren. I mean, like Warren has a very specific tone. Nobody rocks. He does 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 the job. And Steven's out there. It's the Steven Piercy band. He's not trying to say this is rat, you know? Right. And that's where the difference is. He, and people bring the Brett Michaels thing into, into play as well. Brett, but Brett didn't say, hey, this is poison. He's saying I'm the Brett Michaels band. That's what he calls it. And he does poison songs. And he also does a handful occasionally of his solo songs. And, and, and of course he does cover songs. I mean, and, and he does, some people complain, but he's done everything from the kiss cover to the sweet home, Alabama to, I think he even does like sublime, you know, what I got. And he does a great, uh, Judas priest of a head into the highway. Does he do that? Oh, it, it's really good. Come, like, for real. I've never heard him do heading out to the highway. I love it. Uh, but you know, it, it you know, it, it's, he makes it his own cause his voice doesn't right. sound like Halford's. Uh, right. So, you know, he's, he's not trying to, to say it's poison and, and that, that's where people are. I was I talking say, about Piercy doing, uh, heading out on the highway. Oh, Piercy. You're talking yeah. about, and not Sorry about Michaels. That. My bad. My okay. Bad. I was going to say Brett Michaels does heading out to the highway. But anyways, here's here's where it gets tricky. And this is where I say people, meaning industry people and comrades and people within the bands and friends of and related to. When when a pro, when a promoter gets a hold of a logo and puts together an ad mat and then there's an advertisement that says live this Saturday night in concert rats and you hear round and round and it goes into the you know the, the actual Atlantic Records recording and you hear the guitar parts for lay it down in concert this Saturday night come and see rat live and it goes into you're in love and back for more and now Joe Blow who's driving home from work in his truck hears that commercial and he hears that and he's like fuck that's badass and so now he tells his wife, let's go see Rat and so-and-so. And and so 
now they buy a $25 ticket and they go to the concert and some of them do get there and go, hold it. Who's that? Right. That's not, that's not, that's not rat. And, and there is, there is a, a larger percentage. We're in Los Angeles and for people in the industry, you know, we're here, we know the difference, but you know, there's a lot of States and a lot of cities and a lot of C and D markets and County fairs and uh, casino gigs in Iowa and Kansas that those people aren't privy to every bit of industry information. And so they're, they're seeing the ad mat, the logo, or they're hearing that commercial with that big radio voice, Sunday, 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 you know, and they're like, holy shit, it's rat. It's so-and-so it's this. And then they go and then they go, holy shit, that's not, that's not who I thought it was, you know? And they might sound great, but there is people that have stood there and then went, fuck. And then, you know, they realize it's, it's not Steven Piercy. It's not Warren D. Martini. It's not the real rap band. And that's, that's where the false narrative comes out, you know? Well, it's like you can, and I love Steven Piercy's voice. Mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of people, they had to triple track his vocals and, and, you know, live sometimes it can be a little wonky, but I don't care. Like, I don't, you can. It's get- like I said about Paul Stanley. Paul, Paul's voice is, you know, hit the bricks a little bit along the way. Steven's been doing this 40 years. I mean, Mickey Rat dates back to, if I'm not mistaken, 76, you know? So, you know, he doesn't have the pipes that he used to. Hey, who cares? It's still, it's Steven. And that's, that's part of what makes Rat what, what Rat is. I mean, he never sounded like Pavarotti or Bruce Dickinson to begin with. It's, it's an attitude and a, and a swagger and a delivery that he has as a package. And, um, it doesn't make a difference if a 29 year old kid can hit all the notes. People, people don't want to see that as Rat. Yeah, that's just my thought. No, you're right. It's like I'm a huge Kiss fan, second favorite band, and I don't mind Eric Singer or Tommy Thayer being uh, in the band. They, they frankly can play better than Ace and Peter right now. I mean, I've seen Kiss with Peter his last run. It was like even as a fan, I'm like, this is not good. And it's no disrespect to him, but mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like Jesus. But you know, Paul's, you know, Jesus, he's in his early 60s, so mm-hmm. I'm not shitting on the guy. But right. It's like it's rough. And David Lee Ross, same thing, but I wouldn't want to hear anyone else sing the songs. Yeah. You know, and as far as like the, the Eric Singer thing's concerned, people have questioned that or said things about it, the diehards. But, you know, at, at that point, he was brought in because Eric Carr was sick, you know, and, and not only sick, but shortly after succumbed to cancer and died. And and from what I know, and I'm not the biggest of Kiss fans, but I don't think Peter Chris was anywhere in the wheelhouse of even being involved with kiss at that point. So Gene and Paul were doing their thing. And that was the, the record with like Domino and stuff like that. And Bruce Kulik was still there. Revenge. Revenge. Okay. Um, so, you know, Eric Singer had to be brought in and that was 91, 92. So, I mean, he had obviously been brought in and, I think come had come from Alice Cooper, you know, another respectable project, um, or actually Badlands. Badlands, it was Badlands. Is also in a, a very, uh, I don't want to say bizarre version, but a uh, kind of one of the wackier lineups of Black Sabbath, right? Where it was like Tony Iommi and th- three. So dudes. you know, Eric stepped in and did his job and is a pro and uh, and continued to be so, you know, throughout that decade and then into the two thousands. And as they obviously went and brought the other guys back and then came full circle and the other guys said, you know, well, if we don't get 
or it was, I believe, to be said or alleged that, you know, if we don't get an even split or more money, then we're out of here. And it's like, okay, Ace and Peter, then you're out of here. And then they brought Eric back in. And, and as many people know, Tommy had been involved with them for many years, from Gene producing Black and Blue to Tommy being involved with Kiss as a tour manager, production guy. He was, he was helping Paul and Gene and, and that, that capacity where it just felt natural to have him step from the side of the stage to put his guitar over his neck and be, be the ace. Well, I know. Uh, Asenstein or whatever they like Frank and Ace. <laughs> he does have a big head. I mean, my, I have a big head, but I mean, Jesus Christ. Tommy Thayer could have uh, protected uh, President Kennedy if he was riding shotgun with him that exactly. day. Melonhead, I think. The fans on Metal Sludge call him Melon. They don't even call him Tommy Thayer. They call him Melonhead. I've heard Frank and Ace, which that's kind of funny. Uh, but, but I mean, like, uh, to me, like, you know, Kiss is different. Like, I mean, Ace and Peter, like, they, they were, you know, the reunion tour, like, everyone wants to see Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter. Mm -hmm. So it, they had a little bit more power, in my opinion, than, say, Izzy, uh, you know. But I could also see Gene and Paul's thing, like, hey, we've kept this band afloat while you guys were off making whatever you were doing. We're not going to give you an equal cut. But it was like a weird, like they were going to make boatloads of money only with Ace and Peter. Right. So, I mean, it was like, you know, whereas with, uh, you know, like Izzy, it's like Guns N' Roses is going to make tons of money as long as you have those three Axel Slash. Yeah, and, and you know, even though Slash was not in Guns N' Roses for those 20 plus years, he had done multiple releases and, and Slash has undoubtedly become you know, probably a top five guitar hero, icon, legend, whatever you want to put him. He's in the category with the Eddie Van Halens and the, yeah. and, and the, and the Stevie Ray Vaughns. And, you know, he, he's absolutely in the, in that, that upper, upper, upper tier of guys, you know, and he's, it's not like he just went away and made one or two solo records. He's had multiple records, multiple projects. He's clearly the face of Gibson and Marshall, and he's the face of rock and roll. Undoubtedly the biggest guitar uh, influence since Eddie Van Halen. I would agree with that. And uh, by you the know? way, uh, all his projects feature my great friend, the great Brent Fitz. Brent on Fitz drums. on drums. And Miles Kennedy uh, on vocals, who I love, man. I mm -hmm. mean, I saw them at the Palladium uh, maybe a year ago, and uh, and Todd Kearns on bass, Winnipeg's finest, uh, and I forget the. So other. is it half Canadian guys? Because Brent's Canadian yeah. too, right? Brent's from Winnipeg. Todd's from Winnipeg. I, there's a rhythm guitar player who's really, really good. Uh, I don't know his story. Sorry wow, for not all knowing Canadians. Your name. And so uh, these guys must all know about hockey then too. Yeah, eh? Uh Well, Brent's a huge hockey guy, but. Uh, you know, they would do the Guns N' Roses songs, and, you know, uh, I love Miles Kennedy's take mm -hmm. on uh, those songs, but I could see people going, oh, this ain't Axel. But so what are you going to do? Right. You know, they can't get along. What's Slash supposed to do? But now they are getting along, and they did those stadium shows, and they did well, and it went over great. And There's a weird... I went to the Dodger Stadium show Thursday night. You did? And... Uh, it, How was it? Can I ask? I, absolutely. Give me, your, give me your two cents. Well, you know, I, I'm a fan uh, of the band. I'm not like a super fan. Uh, it was a weird uh, stage dynamic. Uh, you know, you got the feeling that Axel Slash and Duff weren't necessarily getting along because there, there was virtually no stage interaction between the three. Um, it was like 
they were all in their own sections of the stage, which was massive. And uh, Duff seemed to interact the most with Richard Fortas, the rhythm guitar player who kind of looks like Izzy. I don't know if that's intentional or not. Uh, and Slash had some nice uh, interactions with uh, Frank, the drummer, Frank Ferrer, I think, if I'm saying his name correctly, who I loved. Uh, and then uh, I could do without the two keyboard players, to be honest with you. I, I, could, I mean, I know Dizzy's been in the band forever, but the, the second female, uh, or second keyboard player. She's really sexy, though. Like, oh, I she's saw hot. some pictures of her and like, wow, is she a nice looking girl. And very good. You know, it's nothing against her uh, abilities, but it's like when I think of Guns N' Roses, I don't think it double keys uh you know what is this white snakes here well I and i think that's where axel throws the curveballs at you where it went it went from like okay we're gonna get a lead guitarist in the band and this is not recent this is 15 years ago but we're gonna get a guitarist in the band that wears a chicken bucket on his head and a mask and wears a raincoat and then during his guitar solo puts a pair of nunchucks over his shoulders and goes crazy with him like and so axel for axel to go we're gonna put another keyboardist in the band but you know what let's throw in a a sexy young girl with blue hair. You know, it's like that's Axel just really throwing some flavor at you that, you know, which I don't necessarily mind because I am a huge Buckethead fan. And if you take, I know a lot of people don't take him seriously because he wears a, literally a Kentucky fried chicken bucket on his head, <laughs> but as a guitar player, as a technical guitar player, I don't know oh, yeah, if there's any better. Yeah. He's a freak. Uh, he does a, this is kind of a weird, kind of related. Uh, there was a show I watched as a kid called Giant Robot. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a show, it was like a Japanese, Not it wasn't animated, it was live action, where this little Asian kid, Johnny Sacco, would speak into a watch and give this giant robot orders. And the robot would only follow the kid's orders. And there was a really nice instrumental theme song to it. And... Buckethead is a huge fan of this show, Giant Robot. So he does these wacky solos where he integrates the theme song to Giant Robot. So, and does he doesn't he do the robot on stage too? Like, yeah, he does because the robot. If you if anyone knows what I'm talking about, Giant Robot had these very uh, you know it was like the late '60s, right. so there was no CGI, right? Very uh, like restricted, you know, heavy movements with his hands, <laughs> right? Uh, you know. Spielberg wasn't directing this, so wow. Uh, uh, but I think as good as as great of a guitar player as Buckethead is, everyone looked at him and go, "This guy ain't Slash." Right. He might be an even better guitar player than Slash from a technical standpoint. Yeah. But Slash is care. more of a feel guy. He's got a little little bit more of a feel and soulful guy, soulful guitarist thing going on. Where Buckethead is like kind of a machine, and you know, well, he's like you know, Ace Frehley. Not the most uh, technically proficient guitar player, right? Uh, you know, I mean, take the some of the guys who replaced him, Mark St. John, Vinnie Vincent, you know, technical wizards, right? But especially with because Mark wasn't in the band that long, and I got to be honest with you, Animalize probably my favorite guitar sounding Kiss record ever. Which so what? What's that big hit? Heavens on fire. Heaven on fire. Um, Thrills in the night. Tears are falling is not on that record. Tears are falling is Asylum. Uh, okay. You know, uh, I think and Gina Paul shit on Mark St. John's. Oh, he wasn't right for the band. You know, but you guys fucking Grover Jackson picked him. I'm right. sure he was right. Right. Uh, 
And uh, he only played like uh, two or three uh, concerts with him, which is probably the rarest Kiss bootlegs out there uh, are anything with Mark St. John. Uh, and I think they, someone in the Kiss camp told me, uh, Paul looked over at Mark St. John once and he's playing with his teeth and he's like doing these wacky movements. And Paul's like, uh, this guy's not going to upstage me. Right. Which I, you know, I guess it's Paul's band, but like you guys, you guys wanted a Jake E. Lee clone, a George Lynch clone, a, a, a Brad Gillis, a Randy Rhodes. You got it. Right. So, you know, and, and same thing with Vinny and, and Bruce Kulick is like the jack of all trades. I mean, I know you, uh, full disclosure, you've worked with Bruce and Shameless. I have. Or on Shameless. Uh, and we've played some live shows together and in I Germany Bruce. and in Holland and. Bruce yeah. currently in uh, Grand Funk Railroad. I yep. Uh, I mean, he literally can play any. And is Bruce probably the youngest guy in Grand Funk Railroad? That's kind of crazy, yeah. huh? Bruce got to be in his mid fifties. I mean, those guys in Grand Funk Railroad. I mean, that that's an that's an old band. Yeah. Right. And I saw them play at a uh, uh, like a country fair. American Band is that their big hit? Yeah. Which is from what, like seventy four or? It's, earlier it's maybe early 70s but you you know grand funk was like when i saw them play live with bruce it was kind of like watching cool and the gang when i saw them open for van halen right. you don't realize how many hits they right had. and then you're hearing multiple songs you're like yeah. oh i know that song i know that song, know that song. It's like you know cool and the gang you just think celebration and maybe joanna but right. then you know it's like four or five other songs and then it's the same thing with grand funk right so i guess the whole point of this is Fans, I think, have an affinity for the original lineups. You know, Frank Ferrer, the drummer, is amazing in Guns N' Roses. Yes, I well, noticed they it, did take out one in a million with a black drummer in the band. You right. gotta, yeah, you know. And at the end of the day, the the whole thing with the original guys, it's like, it's just as people grow, the things change. You know, it's just like it's like being a football fan or a sports fan when the when Brett Favre was no longer a Packer and then went to the Jets. That just seemed like that can't be right. And then he went to the Vikings for a year, which was like, that's, and like when Emmett Smith left the Cowboys and went to the Arizona Cardinals, like seeing Emmett Smith with a Cardinal on his helmet and red pants was just like, or, or, or Joe Montana who left the San Francisco 49ers and went to the Kansas City Chiefs. Or OJ, the great Orenthal James Simpson, uh went to uh, the 49ers for two or years. Or he went from being, you know, as iconic football player Hertz rental car, you know, airplane movie to like really you like murdered your wife and her boyfriend and you're we're chasing you down the freeway right now like allegedly. there's certain yeah allegedly there's certain things to watch and see and just go wow is that really happening like that's just not right like seeing Brett Favre in a Vikings helmet was just to Packer fans was like and I'm a diehard Packer fan but I mean there was people in Wisconsin that if they could have killed him and his wife and his daughters they would have done it they were that mad you know and I'm like hey you know Packers moved on, and at one point, the Vikings went, hey, you want to play another year? We'll give you $18 million, you know? I mean, I'm a— And Brett thought, you know, I got a couple of weekends to go. I got another six months in me. Sure, I'll take the money, you know? And it's like, I guess when a band breaks up or somebody leaves or somebody quits, and then they go, well, hey, uh, you want to do this or go here? There's, there's, there's reasoning behind it, and people— can't always stay together and there's there's a lot of different moving parts that make a product a band a team 
you know, work or not work or work together or not work together? I mean, the only thing I've ever uh, experienced in that realm is when Franco Harris, I'm a biggest Pittsburgh Steeler fan, uh, loved him in the 70s when mean I was Joe a kid. Joe Green, Jack Lambert, Terry Bradshaw, Lynn Swan. I mean, Stallworth. Maybe the greatest collection of uh, athletes. Uh, Rocky Blyer. In an individual or in a team sport, nine Hall of Famers out of 22 starters. Wow. I mean, that's just, there, there's. There's no team that can close to matching that, except maybe the Edmonton Oilers when they had Gretzky, Curry, Messier, uh, Coffey, uh, Grant Fuhrer. But uh, when Franco Harris was chasing Jim Brown's record, and he really wanted it, and I think the Steelers were like, uh, dude, we're done. He played, I think, one year for the Seattle Seahawks, and it was brutal, man. It was just like, even as a somewhat of a teenage, early teenager, I'm like, man, this is hard to watch. Yeah. And the Seahawks came into the league in what, 80? Uh, that I'd have With to look up. Tampa Bay and Seattle both came in, I want to say, in 80. They think, well, Tampa Wikipedia Bay. Wikipedia that. Right, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. You know, it's, you know I, I've got the Mike Knuckles in one hand. Thank you, Stephen Piercy. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to send out a picture of you and your new look on Facebook just to get the numbers up. It's like a uh, preview. Uh, so you, we've talked about original lineups you know, some playing, some not playing. The Hair Nation Festival you did, I don't, did it have one original lineup? Because you had like LA Guns, you had uh, Tough, you had Britney Fox. Uh, what was the mood like when you had all these, you know, pretty big bands, not one huge band, but like, and I don't mean this as a... Uh, I don't I don't think, I, I'm, I'm thinking right now about everybody that was there. I don't think... Any one band had all original members. The only one who I might, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think Odin did. Because I know Aaron played bass and the one Duncan guy was there and I'm pretty sure it was Randy singing. Um, I'm, I'm going to say that Odin might have been all original members. Um, for those that don't know or don't remember, Odin was best known for their Bought in Decline of Western Civilization where they were on stage, I believe at Kazari's, and the crowd was going, Odin, Odin, Odin. As and they were in the jacuzzi with like all these hot Well, girls. and that's when Randy O said, yeah, if I don't get as big as Robert Plant, I'm going to kill myself, you know? And then it became kind of a internet joke as years went by that when he did get interviewed, like, well, you didn't get as big as Robert. How are, how are you still alive? <laughs> you know, you were supposed to kill yourself. But um, so, yeah, I mean, as far as, one of those bands having every original member, I don't think, I don't think anybody was. Um, there's a couple of bands that had maybe three members there. I think Kix has got three guys, the singer, I believe the drummer, maybe even both the guitarists, but the bassist is not the same. Because um, like Britney Fox, you had Johnny D, uh, the drummer, and... Billy Child's the bassist, and then Tommy Paris is the second singer that replaced when Dean quit. And they, they did one major label record with Tommy, which was on Atlantic... Bite Down Bite Hard. Bite Down Hard with the song Louder, actually, which I actually like that song. Um, but, um, so there's, you know... And then technically, that's really only one of the original, original Britney Fox guys, because... Even Johnny wasn't an original. Tony Destra. Sticks Destra was the drummer who got killed on the way home from either a showcase or a recording studio session or something. 
right as they were about to get or getting signed. Yeah, which uh, and I think it, uh, there's so many uh, parallels with Britney Fox and Cinderella because I know Michael Kelly Smith was an was original, the original guitar member, player, original guitarist in Cinderella. And I want to say Tony Destra was at the original some point. drummer as well. And they the label signed Tom, and they took Eric, but then they threw the other two to the side. And Sticks Destra and Michael Kelly got Dean, and formed Britney Fox, which was essentially like Diet Cin Cinderella. Yeah, Diet Cinderella. You know, Cinderella Light. And I, you know, and Johnny D came from Wasted. Okay. With Phil Way, as, no Pete Way. Right, right. Not, not Phil Way, Pete Way. And I loved Britney Fox, but, uh, you know, they just, I think, I guess there was only one room for one. Fun fact, I don't know if you knew this, but we were managed by the same company that managed Britney Fox. Back in their heyday? Power Star Management, Brian Kushner, Pensac in New Jersey. He's the one who got them their deal and managed them through their heyday. And then eventually he got involved with us. Tough. Tough. And came to L.A. in the summer of 89 and we met with him. And then he started representing us and he helped us get our first East Coast tour, which now I don't know if you know this either. And you're a big Britney Fox fan. We might have never shared this, but Tuff was booked to play an East Coast tour in the spring of 1990 with Britney Fox in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Boston, uh, you know, Philadelphia, Virginia, New Jersey, up and down the East Coast for like two weeks. And we flew all the way to Philadelphia. We got off the plane. We went to the hotel. And we're this is pre-signing. We're this is early spring 1990. And we we were on the verge of our record deal, but we didn't actually have it yet. And Britney Fox had just put out that second record. Um, maybe Dream On was the single. Does that sound right? Well, let me. Uh, I want to. Uh, well, their big record had. Uh, was it Save the Week? Didn't they? Long just, Way from Home or something like that. Long Way to Love. Long Way to Love. So. We're on tour. We, we, we land in Philadelphia. We, we go out to a strip club. Um, me, Michael, George, Todd, uh, I want to say Billy Childs, probably Johnny D, uh, maybe a roadie or a tour manager. So there was about six or eight of us. We went to a strip club and then we went to like a, what they call a Wawa out there. It's kind of like a 7-Eleven. I love Wawa. Right. And they like have sandwiches and all stuffed. So we go in there, it's like two 30 in the morning and we're all wearing like our jackets, which say tough Los Angeles, Hollywood, California with our names on the back. And you know, some of us, one, one of us is wearing like a, a LA Raiders hat. Uh oh, And so, and we're all leather jackets and boots and chains. And I was like nine of us. And we're in a, in a Wawa getting food at two 30 in the morning and out of nowhere, like five squad cars pull in full speed, all rocking. And they, they kind of step in pretty quickly into the, into the, into the, the Wawa. And they're like looking around. And now, now they're just like, there's nonchalantly like seven cops all of a sudden in the Wawa. And we've only been in there for like 60 seconds. And so, uh, cops are all kind of standing around. And then I said, Hey, I, I got to ask like, how come you guys just pulled in like, you know, gangbusters and there's, you know, seven of you here. And he goes, where are you guys from? I said, we're from, we're from LA. We're a rock band. He goes, oh, okay. You know, what do you want on tour? I said, yeah, we're actually on tour with Britney Fox. You know, and I go, this is, you know, a couple of the guys. He's like, oh, okay. We well, you know those guys are local, you know, 
rock stars. And uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, the, the cashier freaked out. He thought he was going to get robbed. And he called 911 and, you know, said he was about to be robbed by a bunch of gangsters. <laughs> so these guys, cops roll in. And, uh, you know, we said, nah, we're on tour, you know, we're, we're from LA, but you know, cops were super nice then, you know, said goodbye. Well, you guys were white. That helped. I mean, yeah, let's be it did honest. Help. If exactly. you guys were living color, it might've been uh, right. guns drawn. And so the next day we, you know, we went to our hotel, went to bed. Next day we woke up, drove up to the living room in Providence, Rhode Island. We opened up for Brittany Fox. We, we kicked ass. It was a great show. Um, had a blast. This was our first East Coast appearance. We had been in the Midwest. We had been in Texas. We had been in Denver and, you know, all over the West Coast here. But, you know, Minneapolis, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Chicago. But we hadn't been that far east. So this was our first show there. And now we're on tour with Britney Fox. We've got, you know, two weeks of dates. Tough supporting the MTV darlings, you know. And because um, Britney Fox, you know, is on dial MTV and all A that. lot. Yeah, and um, the next day we went to Boston and we were in the hotel and we went to the mall because that's what you do. We went to the record store to look around and, you know, get noticed. We're, you know, from the, from the West Coast and from Hollywood and with our jackets on. And, and we come back from the mall and we hear all this noise in the hallway. And it was a bunch of ruckus. So we thought the guys were screwing around. They're playing football or they're chasing each other with, you know, throwing ice on each other. We just thought it was like tour shenanigans. You know, we'd done this before and we come out in the hallway and Dizzy Dean is on top of Michael Kelly Smith and Johnny, Johnny D and Billy Childs and Richie, the tour manager and everybody, they're trying to pull Dean off and there's punches and yelling and screaming and choking and hair extensions being pulled. And, you know, we we basically walked into the 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 fight, the the breakup, and so then uh, everybody scattered, and then the tour manager and everybody you know ran in their rooms, and then there was all this you know we're like what's going on, and so then they explained to us that there was a there was a band meeting that turned into a fight, and Dean had attacked Michael, allegedly, you know, um, and uh, he was quitting the band and he was leaving, and so. At one point, they asked me to go try to talk some sense into Dean from leaving the band. And uh, and they had already known us because we shared management company. And, and Dean had known who we were as well. And he knew that I was kind of the straight-laced guy in the band. I was the non-smoker, non-drinker. And that's kind of his thing. He was real militant about that Um kind of Gene and Paul style. So I had to go to their, uh, to Dean's room and I'm trying to, you know, Dean's packing his bags. He's getting ready to go to like the train station to go back to Philadelphia. He's quitting the band. It's over with Brittany Fox is done. And I'm like thinking, this is the second day of our tour. Where the fuck are you going? We just flew here from LA. You can't do this, you know? And, um, I tried to talk him off the ledge and he, he told me that he liked me and he respected me and he thought that we were going to go far and blah, blah, blah. But his band is done with and he's going to go home and he's got a new band and he's doing what turned out to be Black Eyed Susan. and Which is good. I yeah. Mean. Whole new direction, kind of Black Crows-ish. And, um, but needless to say, everything that we had worked for to come to the East Coast for like these, you know, 10, 12 shows had literally evaporated in 48 hours. And um, what was the main uh, reason for him leaving? Well, the guys in Britney Fox, I think, like to party like any rock band at this point. And that meant just 
girls drinking, partying, doing what most guys were doing. I don't think anybody was ODing. Nobody was like sticking needles in their arms. But Dean was very, very militant about what he wanted the guys to do. And I remember them talking about he wanted them to rehearse on days off while they were on tour. Because he was like wanted to be like a good like a musician like yeah he was he was just very strict about what he wanted guys to do and work out and go to bed at a reasonable time and wake up and eat right and do push-ups and sit-ups and at one point you know not every guy is going to want to do that in a a rock band especially it's like no i want to smoke pot and fuck her you know it's like so there was there was a real divide there and um I guess they had had meetings about this and everybody had tried to adhere to certain things. But at one point we're like, dude, this is fun now. We're on the road. We're on a tour bus. We're with, we're with the guys in tough going to a strip club or whatever. Like we're just going to go have fun, you know? And, um, so needless to say it dissolved in front of our very eyes. I was the Stevie help save the day, you know? And I tried to talk to Dean and I said, Dean, you know, this is our first East coast tour. We spent thousands of dollars to fly out here. We have a rental van. We have merchandise. We're ready to play. We want to do these shows. We want to open up for you guys. Um, but nothing, uh, changed it. And within a couple hours, he was in a taxi on his way to the airport or to the train station. And that was the end of Brittany Fox. So then, you know, then it was, everything had to be, you know, solved in a matter of a couple of 24 to 36 hours and the, the, the venues that had booked all the shows weren't willing to, to just book tough. You know, they were, they were selling headlining tickets for Britney Fox, this, you know, Columbia recording artist, MTV, you know, band. Cause on the East coast, they were fairly big. Well, they're from Philadelphia. So they had already kind of established themselves in that tri-state area as well. And so once they broke up and it was over and they canceled all the shows, we didn't have any shows either. And within 48 hours, we were on our flights back home. And that probably cost us, I would say, in the $10,000 range when you put in flights and right. the, the rentals and the plans to leave and go out and come back. And and uh, so we were part of that, which was kind of gnarly. But And that was like maybe, what was that? Uh, what year was that? And to be honest, the one show we played with them, we crushed them. I love Britney Fox and they were great guys, but they were already, you know, a couple of records in and done a lot of stuff. And we were, you know, at that point, you know, not to sound goofy, but we were the next poison, the next Motley Crue. And we were just on fire. Like we were 22, 23, 24 years old and we looked better. We were younger. We were hungry and we just fucking destroyed that place, sold merch, screwed every girl. I mean, I remember this is, this is honest engine. They pulled up in a tour bus. We pulled up in a minivan and as they got out, people walked up to them. But when we got out of the van and it was like George with his hair and me and Michael looking like Nikki six and whatever, like we just, you know, took over the, the excitement of like, this is that band we've been reading about in metal edge or blast or power line or metal licks or, and now we're, we're, you know, on the East Coast and about ready to destroy everybody in our path. Well, uh, in defense of Britney Fox. They weren't very good looking to begin with. <laughs> they, they, they look like an Amber Alert lineup with instruments. Uh, yeah. But, you know, yeah. The best yeah. looking guy was Johnny and he was hidden behind the drum kit. So, you know. And he had that perm. Uh who many years later, I tried to hook him up uh, with a motorhead uh, because uh, right. there was a 
point in time where uh, Mickey D was, uh, you know, his status in the band was uh, uh, on the chopping block for a bit, maybe. I'm an open. No, I think uh, you know. I forget the. Uh, there was just uh, possibilities, and I was right. asked because of my knowledge of music and whatnot. Hey, uh, do you want to start? Uh, you know, reaching out to people, and I. He was the first guy I reached out to because I thought, oh, wow, different drummer than Mickey D for sure, right? Uh, and I think he thought I was bullshitting him, but I'm like, no, here's the management's. Right. Uh, but uh, Mickey uh, thankfully stayed on because he's was really perfect for Motorhead, and now he's in the Scorpions, right? Which I uh, imagine. And Johnny's been playing with Doro Pesh for ever. God is since the Britney Fox thing ended, and even probably maybe during the end of it. So he's been in that band for like 25 years. And Doro's big all over Europe. I mean, he just I saw him at Hair Nation. He said they just got back from a tour of the Ukraine, like a Ukrainian tour. And like they're playing big venues. Yeah. You know, she's, she's playing some of those big events. And even though maybe not a headliner, she's still playing on big shows with the Maidens and the Priests and the, you know. Motorheads, uh, yeah. you know, uh, you know uh, until recent uh, memory. Uh, but that's the crazy thing about the, and you know, I know you go over there a lot. It's like some of these, you know, countries just love 80s, uh, you know, music still. I and mean, I know Mr. Big is still big in, pardon the pun, Japan. Well, and, and to give you a, a comparison, Tuff went and played in Brazil. The last time was about 2011, so about five years ago. And we played and we ended up having uh, well over 300 people that came to our show. You know, it was like a four or 500 seater and it was pretty much closing close to capacity, which for us, that's a lot of numbers on the same exact night, Zach wild black label society played an arena in the city. That was like a 5,000 seater and it was sold out. Now, if black label society headlines in the United States of America, they're doing house of blues, you know, maybe 1,000, 1,200 seaters, you know, maybe 1,500 seats, unless they're on OzFest or something, then they're on a, you know, a big stage and they get a lot more people. But just, you can see by the comparison, they can go to Brazil and play three to 5,000 seat arenas and sell them out, which is literally three to five times the amount of people they would draw in America. And same thing with Tough. I mean, Tough's a hundred to 150 person band, uh, draw on most club shows, um, occasionally a couple hundred. But in Brazil, we had, you know, the better part of 400 people there, you know, who paid probably a pretty handsome ticket as well. Not 10 bucks, but more like 25 bucks, you know? Well, I'm just amazed at the, you know, Rat still, uh, you know, when they were with Piercy and, you right. know, with Cavazzo, they would go to Brazil and, and played on. I think they played on the Rock and Rio thing. Well, and, yeah, you know. and, and there's a very uh, infamous uh, uh, recording of their set that's right. uh, you know maybe not the best uh, representation. It's it's like a bad soundboard with like all different mics and it's not mixed well and it sounds right? like, as a, once again as a non musician mm -hmm. it sounds like five guys playing uh, to different songs. <laughs> Uh, and but I still like you know, I, I could care, but I bet you like sitting in that open air arena stadium was probably sounded loud and badass and killer. But yeah, when you when you kind of break it down and single out a vocal, a bass, a drum, and it's it's a it's a it's a raw soundboard tape with really nothing, n nothing that's been mixed or nothing put through any types of 
compressors and choruses and balanced. It's it, it yeah, it's it's a little it's a little raw sounding. But uh, speaking of soundboard recordings, I was listening to Kiss uh, '84 Nashville yesterday as bootleg off the soundboard. Right, and you know. If you like '80s Kisses, they they really should release this as a live album. I it's, know they won't. It's good. If you like that, they very fast mm-hmm. tempo. Like it's so weird to listen to Vinny and Eric doing the classic Kiss songs, you know, Cold Gin and, and Firehouse, because it's it's sped up pretty uh, right. amazingly. But uh, it is funny the different levels of bootleg quality that are out there. Uh, you know, I have a few Springsteen boots that like maybe. I, I told you the story about that place in Westwood that I had shut down by accident, right? I don't remember that. So there was this store called uh, Mayhem in Westwood. Bootleg CDs, uh, uh, VHS tapes that that I still have, as you can see. Right. And uh, so I'm at my dad's country club one day, and I see Mike Douglas, the talk show host, legendary talk show host of the 70s. And one of the bootleg uh, VHS tapes I got was of Kiss on Mike Douglas. Mm Mm-hmm. And I saw Mike Douglas, and I'm like, hey, man, I, I just saw Kiss on your show. Now, this is probably in the 90s. Right. So he's like, uh, what are you talking about? Because this show wasn't on the air. It wasn't in syndication anymore. Like, oh, I, I bought a copy of it at this store in Westwood. Uh, it was great. And he kind of looked at me weird and uh, get home. As soon as I get home, there's a phone call. Uh, Earl, it's Mike Douglas. And uh, he must have known who my dad was. And... uh Hey, Mr. Douglas, what's up? He's like, uh, Earl, where'd you say that store was? I'm like, oh, it's in Westwood. It's called Mayhem. They got great stuff. Like, I'm pitching him this store that's, like, right, right. costing him money, I guess. I go down uh, about three, four days later to buy more bootlegs, and the store had been shut down. <laughs> but, I mean, it was... a business. You know, it, uh, so I'm sorry, Mayhem. If you, the owners of that store are listening, my bad. Uh but, you know, now I guess you can go on eBay and buy that shit. And, right. Uh, you know, I guess there's, uh, I know in, uh, I forget the uh, message board about MMA. Uh, it's not called the dark web, but there's a underground uh, website for MMA stuff. I'm sure there's many for uh, music bootlegs right. and CDs. Uh, I don't know where you could find them. Uh, but, Intent. Uh, uh, so, Stevie, I mean, I could talk to you all day. What You know... Where do you see the music business going? I buy all my shit exclusively now on iTunes. Uh, I know most stand-up comics, it's a different medium, I guess. All their stuff is sold on iTunes. Like, how do, like, I used to go to, you know, rat concerts or whatever, buy CDs at the merch booth. Where's it going now for bands? I don't know. Honestly, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm at a point where, you know, I think we're in the fourth quarter essentially for, for our career or what I do and, you know, making music and doing what, you know, amounted to demo tapes at one point and then trying to get a record contract off that and submitting it with a paper bio and a, and an eight by 10 that you go over to like, you know, J and L photography on La Brea or something. And we need 50 press shots and here's our PO box and here's our hotline, you know, a fax number or whatever you had on there. Like all that is 25 years removed. And even, even having, you know, what then amounted to CDs or, you know, here, here's our video you know, and, and then being able to upload things on YouTube and, 
even if the highest quality. I mean, now it's like stuff like leave Britney alone, you know, ends up getting fucking 20 million views, you know, some weird vine Instagram. Yeah. You know, so the, the way, the way press works and publicity, I mean, it's, it's, there's gotta be different avenues and different things that can be done. I mean, I'm not a huge Kanye West fan, but I do think that some of the things he's done are absolutely brilliant. Like, and I don't know who started these, but I don't pay a hundred percent attention to all modern artists and whatever, but this whole pop-up store thing where they go and basically say, we're going to have 10 stores open up on September 1st, one in New York, one in LA, one in Chicago, one in Miami, one in Atlanta, one in Dallas, one in Seattle, one in, uh, you know, Detroit. And they pick these 10 places and they say, we're going to have a store with limited items for one day. And they don't tell anybody until two days before. And they say, Kanye West pop-up store, such and such La Brea from 10 AM to 10 PM. And literally, you know, with Instagram and with their following, there's, you know, and you probably saw this, right? With the hundreds of people standing in line from the night before, all with a credit card and a pocket full of cash, ready to buy t-shirts for $75 a piece or hoodies for $300 or jackets for a thousand or belts for 200. And they literally open up a store in, in, an, in an empty venue for one day and do 50, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars in business, you know, like crazy, absolutely crazy, but it works to an extent. You know, I even thought that Kanye West's recent concerts I saw of him with the floating stage above the crowd. I mean, I thought that was genius. Like out of all the things we've seen with all the bands from the Kisses and the Motley Crues and the the Bon Jovi's, like here's this platform floating above 10,000 people and Kanye West on it with one microphone. And he's got a safety belt around his waist with a chain, you know, that's literally he can go up to the edge and look over. And the, and the thing is turning. And I thought that's genius. That's absolutely genius. So how music's going to be shared or concerts will be attended or tickets will be sold. I think it's, I think there's still new things to be done. I think different artists will present it in different ways. Um, but just being a band and making a video or a tape or having a song or having a, a, a promotional item, you know, it's, it's all still moving. You know, it's all still changing. And I mean, compared to what the Beatles did or Elvis, when they did before records, a single, they'd cut a song and then they realized, well, if we're going to put it on a 45, we need a B side. We need at least two songs. So there's something on the other side and they used to sell those little 45s that we'd get, you know, at the store. Um, and then it became albums and double albums and gatefolds and, and then the CDs and all the different eight tracks and cassettes and, you know, now, now, now the, the social network platforms are out of control. I mean, I go on YouTube and I'm like, I can share this through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and 
Gmail and Google. And like, there's like 15 little bars. I'm like, I don't even know what 10 of those are. I've never even heard of them, you know? I mean, it's, I I saw MTV had an award show the other day and it's an old joke. I'm certainly not the only person to say it, but it's like, how do you have a video award show? And I don't even know if they play fucking videos anymore. It's all, uh, you know, I'm 16 and pregnant or, you know, 14 and pregnant you know i mean that show really could go on forever I mean, right just you know i'm waiting for i'm 87 and pregnant you know so i mean i don't know where it's going i just know that um because videos were so much a part of why bands like tough made it rat i mean uh you know rat who knows if they make it if their videos with milton burl don't right. you know aren't all over the the uh the, that channel uh you know, you guys certainly were, uh, came on toward the tail end of the era, but like, you, you know, you guys were darlings of MTV for a bit. I mean, even Kiss, Bon Jovi. Well, and even, you know, that, that Psy, that Korean rapper that did Gangnam Style, which, I mean, there was no denying the hook of that song and the craziness of the video and the, you know, the, the samples or whatever they did and the guy definitely had some type of a charisma that just transcended. I mean, this is a dude that's basically from a a country completely outside, outside the, you know, the, the comfort zone for America. I mean, there's been some Australian bands that have broken some English bands and some German bands and maybe a Brazilian bands, or maybe one or two from Japan and a star here or there from other select countries, you know, ABBA from Sweden, but for this guy to come out of Korea and then put out that song, which of course, and then when people came to realize it's like, he's been around 10 or 15 years, it's his like seventh studio record. And, but that song just exploded beyond anybody's, you know, thought process, you know, and a billion views on YouTube. And, uh, it's just a different world. It's a different world than when we grew up listening to foreigner or Bob Seger on the radio in the Midwest. And I say that for me being from Wisconsin and growing up and hearing, you know, those songs or rush or triumph and, and then something crazy would come on like in the early mid eighties, like quiet ride or twisted sister and then motley crew. And suddenly it was just, you know, it progressed and continued to grow. And I think that for young artists, you know, there's still a ceiling that, will be met that you know we haven't seen yet well i mean i mean quiet riots uh, another example of if that video for come on feel the noise isn't so massive do they pop like they did and right you know certainly motley crew uh those bands really uh lucked out of uh just the really the right place right time they they were visual this new visual medium had just Kind of just exploded, right? And a band like the Cars, uh, who I love, the Cars, great band. Uh, but you, I mean, they were probably the most innovative uh, video uh, savvy band. I mean, yeah, and it's a it's another great example of like where Rick Rick Ocasek was not, uh, it did not look like David Lee Roth, you know, or didn't look like David Bowie or Billy Idol or even uh, you know Simon Lebon from Duran Duran. He was a gooky geeky quirky looking tall skinny dude now for the, that oh geez, i forgot uh, hard to do this uh geez, hold on, uh, 
what kind of uh, pile up you got? just turned on the Facebook Live. This is Stevie Rochelle. <laughs> Singer of the band. You're a mess. And this is his website, Metal Sludge at metalsludge.tv if you it's are metalsludge.tv or metalsludge.com or metal-sludge.com there's a whole bunch of domains and they all go to the same place pretty much just google metal sludge and you'll find us it's hard to uh i felt like the drummer from def leppard there for a second uh just trying to uh juggle some things um stevie uh rochelle one of the greats in the music business uh, i mean an entrepreneur greats and all entrepreneurs i mean of the 80s metal uh 80s rock scene you are one of the few still making a living doing it yeah you know it's it's uh it's a combination of things uh you know between tough and the cheeseheads and metal sludge and shameless and i got involved with a new project out of brazil called tales from the porn uh, which is kind of a weird name but it's it's all brazilian guys they recorded a record i'm singing on it uh, at one point, I'm thinking in probably early 2017, I'll be in Brazil and doing some shows and not just Brazil, but South America. They've talked about like going to, uh, I guess, Argentina or maybe uh, Venezuela or, you know, some other some other obscure countries for me, at least um, down in South America and some you know, multiple shows in Brazil, like Sao Paulo and Rio. And I think there's a city called like Belo Horizonte or something probably pronouncing it wrong, but I look forward to that. And all these musical ventures together collectively helped me put food in my plate, which I'm on a diet right now and I'm starving. You look I great. Yeah, eat. yeah, no, we got, a, I got a meeting to go to. And, and, and so I, I, I bid a farewell to my Facebook friends. This is a Facebook live and please uh, go to metal sludge. If you are a fan of, uh, uh not just eighties rock, cause they cover other, uh, uh genres, but it, it's, uh, primarily uh crazy stuff it's like tmz stuff that we kind of pinpoint that and when somebody does something completely off the wall we usually are there to highlight it just because that's that's usually what you know draws attention people want to see crazy stuff you can see on the front page right now there's a great article if you like cinderella on jeff labar where he speaks of the status of the band uh the Nelson Twins emergency landing right. on an airplane. Uh, Vince Neil and uh, Brett Michaels. Uh, you know Stephen Piercy. Uh, breaking news signs to uh, Frontier Music. So uh, if you you know because listen, let's be honest. You know there's not a lot of uh, websites. There's not a lot of uh, you know uh, people radio shows. I mean it, I'll plug Eddie Trunk because he carries the torch he does he obviously has a big brand and uh it's funny we actually interviewed eddie way long time ago he was on doing i want to say it's like wdha or whda or something some kind of a small uh radio outlet that he was doing uh you know a saturday night show or something for years but he's obviously been involved from I think he worked with Megaforce Records and he was, you know, not only just a fan of Kiss, but then got involved in helping other bands and promoting them. And, and now it's, it's, he's launched himself to another level with the, you know, the, the TV show and the radio stuff and, and all related. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was responsible for getting Ace Freely his deal on Megaforce. Yeah, I think uh, there's some history there. So uh, Facebook Live, guys, uh, I know you wanted this shot. Uh, Stevie Rochelle, Metal Sludge. TV, metalsludge.com. Where can they, uh, you know, we'll just do it this way. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? 
at Stevie Tough on Twitter, at Stevie Tough on uh, Instagram, which is S-T-E-V-I-E and then T-U-F-F because uh, we don't spell it like they do in the dictionary. Um, and if you just Google Stevie Rochelle or Tough, T-U-F-F, I mean, we're on every social network. The same goes for Metal Sludge, at Metal Sludge. Um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, eBay, Amazon. Uh, Craigslist, uh, back page in the body rub section. No, not on there. Um, but uh, Just kidding, guys. Just kidding. Pinterest. I actually started posting stuff on Pinterest. I don't really know how that works. It's like, put it in a group like, hey, buy vinyl records. Okay, well, buy the tough decadation vinyl record. So people have been saying, why are you going to put a vinyl record out? Well, we put one out. So find it on eBay. Tough decadation. Google it, search it, and buy one. And I'll sign it and send it to you. And uh, Stevie's the best and fastest shipping in the business. So, uh, you know, support it, you know, like Eddie Trunk, like uh, myself, support someone who carries the banner for a genre of music that uh, has a big fan base, but for whatever reason, mainstream media doesn't seem to uh, give a shit. Embrace it. Uh, you know, they Care. moved on to, uh, you know, Kanye West and all that stuff. Pardon my language. That's all good. I mean, listen, it bums me out that uh, some of these bands don't get more love. Uh, Shark Island, thank you, Richard Black, very much uh, for, uh, you know, keeping the drumbeat alive for that band. And uh, I think there's a concert coming up, uh, a secret show. I'm getting my info via Dean Del Rey, who uh, had Richard on his podcast. So uh, let there be talk. So check out Dean Del Rey's podcast. He's one of my mentors. And I know Dean Del Rey. I've known him a very long time. I met him at the Omni in Oakland or the Stone in San Francisco many, many years ago. Uh, you know, once again, uh, you know, many people would think me and Dean are not enemies, but like, you know, competing. But right. uh, he really helped me out a lot. Uh, same thing with uh, my show Roast Battle on Comedy Central. People think that I don't like Jimmy Carr. You owned you were great. Uh, but uh, Jimmy Carr's awesome. Uh, we're good buddies. We're not, but well, he lives in the UK. But uh, so, uh, you know, check out Roast Battle on uh, cc.com. Uh, all the clips are up there. And uh, Stevie Rochelle's, uh, he's been with me on this podcast literally from day one. You know, uh, he's provided the music for every single episode. And he's uh, given me a lot of love on his website. And uh, so I'm loyal to people who are loyal and to And vice me. versa. You've done the same for us and for me and for the related. Thank you, Earl. Well, I mean, uh, you know, us uh, fans of this music and, and, you know, you and I are similar that we're, I mean, you certainly have achieved more success in the music business than I have in comedy, but, uh, you know, I think we respect each other. And uh, and I did see one of your very first stand-ups at like a sandwich shop, sandwich shop off Riverside, and that had to be at least 12 years ago. That was... 15 the, years ago. For those of you... Who have followed my career, and uh, let me see, we got some uh, interrupting feeds here. Uh, you will know that um, I started doing comedy in the Valley Valley Village at a speed. I don't want to say freak, but a uh, people who were recovering from speed. There was a coffee shop called the Hot Wired Cafe, where uh, Calico Cooper did Happening Harry help promote that? No, I was good on that uh, help. Uh, Happening Harry, <laughs> nor the Haptones, nor Victor the Snake Man. Uh, <laughs> but I went to one, some of those did. earliest ones. I remember because of my girlfriend at the time, the correct great Shelley Bergren, a uh, co-manager of Motorhead, and our. 
Tuff's former agent at Tapestry Artist back in way back, like 1988. And she also, uh, I think they still, a singerman entertainment, I think they still yes. manage. You know, we talk a lot about bands who should have been huge. And, you know, I, I always wondered why Shark Island wasn't bigger. I mean, we, this is another podcast, but uh, Singerman Entertainment, I think, still represents this band called Zebrahead. Right. And uh, they were in that lit. Orange County. Orange County. Uh, they were in that lit uh, vein. Sugar Ray Everclear kind of. And they had a, uh, I think they're shot at stardom. They had a song called Playmate of the Year. And uh, it's really poppy and catchy. Video done at the mm -hmm. Playboy Mansion. Hot girls everywhere. And, Bummer. Uh, you know, it's just weird. Uh, but I, I'm obsessed with a boy band right now. And I get nothing by plugging these guys. They've, Who is it? I've asked every single member to come on this podcast. They've rejected me, but nicely. I will say this. There was a band, came out about 2005, 2006, called the Click Five. Never heard of them. I'll have to Google it. Please do. Uh, they were boy band. They wore suits. They could play their own instruments. They were like the Cars meets, uh, you know, like the Backstreet Boys. But I swear they were amazing. Paul Stanley wrote a song for them. Uh, Elliot Easton did the solo on the on the song Paul wrote. From the Cars? Yeah. Right, okay. Uh, it was called, the song's called An Angel in You, A Devil in Me. And, you know, it, it, it sounds like something that would, you know, Desmond Child would write. Uh, and it just for whatever reason they didn't uh they didn't hit they had a great they didn't click they were kind of like tough they had a couple videos on mtv they didn't click the, i mean they the click five didn't click there you go That's, thank you stevie's getting into comedy thank you drive through my uh solo album the earl skakel invasion will be out with uh, bobby rondelli on drums and uh, no, i'm just you know, i'm just really delving deep guys uh inappropriate earl soundcloud night tunes follow stevie rochelle thank metal you. sludge and uh, let's get, Stevie will be back for more.